Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's me, Jeff, and I'm here with Aaron and Greg. And today we're talking about suspension travel on mountain bikes. Specifically, we're addressing a topic suggestion from one of our listeners, Mark Kliegerman, who asked how much suspension travel mountain bikers really need. So it's kind of a broad topic, and we thought it'd be an interesting one to tackle. So, the first thing we're going to talk about is basically the categories of suspension travel and their intended uses. So, Aaron, you had a good list of those different intended uses, didn't you? Yeah, it kind of starts out with with hardtails, I would say, because while you don't have rear suspension, you have front suspension. And hardtails are kind of interesting because they they run the full gamut of mountain bike disciplines. So, on the one end, you have, you know, very short travel, 80 to 100 millimeter cross-country race bikes. Um, And then you have, you know, your do-it-all kind of all-purpose um, trail hardtails that are in the 120 to 140. And then you have all-mountain hardtails that have 160 millimeters or more of front suspension. So hardtails are kind of unique that way, that they can they can be really versatile. And then, obviously, on the full suspension side of things, um, you have cross-country, which is the shorter end of the spectrum, 80 to 100 millimeters of travel typically. And as the name says, it's mostly for cross-country riding and racing trail bikes which is kind of the meat of the mountain bike market right now is the 120 to 150 travel range i would say that's kind of your general purpose um you know you can press those into race duty if you really wanted to um it's not something you'd want to necessarily race on all the time um i'm referring to cross-country racing but um that's i think what most people are going to ride are just trail bikes then you have the all mountain bikes that's the kind of what I'd put into the 150 to 180 millimeter travel bracket. Uh, You know, those are great for the big backcountry rides. You know, if you don't know what the the terrain is going to bring, you know, those are kind of bikes that allow you uh, a lot more margin of error when you're bombing down some unfamiliar trails. And then, of course, at the extreme end of the spectrum, you have downhill bikes, and those tend to be 200 or more millimeters of suspension. So, Obviously, downhill bikes are for going down hills, not up hills. Right on. So one of the ones you didn't mention was a completely rigid bike. And obviously that's a, or did you mention that? No. Okay. And obviously that's a pretty niche case. I mean, that's what mountain bikes started out as. And so a lot of people still do ride that, but obviously there's no suspension. I also wanted to note uh, that, a hardtail, the opposite of a hardtail is not a soft tail. Um, a lot of people, especially beginning mountain bikers, might get that confused, but soft tail doesn't mean full suspension. There actually is such a thing as a soft tail, and it's super minimal travel. We're talking like an inch worth of travel compared to, you know, sort of cross country bikes, which will start at like three to four inches of rear travel. So a soft tail. Um, it basically, your frame just sort of flexes. I mean, it has like an elastomer and flexes, but we, we won't really be talking about that. Um, and then finally there, 
really isn't any application for a rear suspension only bike. So that's not a category <laughs> that we'll be talking about because it really doesn't exist. I mean, I'm sure people have tried it and it probably sucked. And that's why you haven't seen those kind of bikes out there. That would be really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to try it though, just to see how weird it is. We should just give it a yeah. shot. Maybe with like a, you know, a big fat tire up front and then, you know, three or four inches of travel in yeah. the rear. Some, yeah. some, some weird ass creation. Franken bike. <laughs> like it. Probably break my other leg or something. (laughs) Greg, do not try. Do not try that at home. So what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of different suspension travel? I mean, why wouldn't everybody just go for like the max suspension and, you know, be ready for pretty much anything? I'll jump in here. Uh, If you have a lot of suspension, it's going to cost you somewhere. There's always a compromise to be made. So if like let's talk about the extreme end, the downhill bikes. Those are just extremely difficult to pedal uphill. The more suspension you have, the heavier the bike is in general, um, and it also sucks up a lot of um, your pedaling power as you try to climb. Um, now, later we'll talk a little bit more about you know advances in suspension to you know, create better pedaling platforms. But in general, the more you have, the harder it is to pedal uphill, and the less suspension you have, the easier it is. Um, as a general rule. That's a good point, Greg, and, and kind of what you touched on um, with the the more suspension travel you have, typically the components on the bike are going to be burlier as well because the more travel you have, the bigger hits you can take. So all your components need to be able to withstand the same hits. So your handlebars and stems and wheels and tires and everything get heavy as well. So that's also what you know makes, makes for a heavier bike. Um, there's kind of three categories for uh, suspension performance. You know, I'd say there's pedaling, climbing, and descending. Um, you know, so short travel bikes in the under 120 millimeter range, they're going to be really efficient peddlers. Um, they're going to be good climbing, and part of that's going to be due to their generally lighter weight. And but they're going to give up some speed on the on the descents. You know, you're not going to be able just to point and shoot through. Uh, big rock gardens, for instance. Now, the the mid-travel bikes in the 120 to 150 range, they're going to be pretty good peddlers. Uh, they're going to be good climbers. They're going to have active suspension. It's going to keep keep really good traction during technical ascents. And then going downhill, um, you know, you can ride them at, at really high speeds on all but the burliest descents, you know. And I'd say in the hands of a skilled pilot, these bikes can be pushed you know well into the all mountain and beyond uh territory so long travel bikes which i would consider 160 millimeters or more um that's what i would call a sit and spin kind of bike these are not going to be very efficient peddlers uh you know they definitely are they don't reward out of the saddle hammering you know standing pedaling efforts it's best just to find a nice easy gear and keep a good cadence and you know you'll you'll get there eventually um if the bike has a lot of traveler it's very slack uh you can really be a handful on the climbs you know it's tough to keep the the front end from wandering on really steep parts of the trail and uh but while you can climb on these bikes you know it's really all about the descending performance so the geometry and the suspension they combine to provide you you know stability and give you confidence at really high speeds so you know, your line choice becomes less critical and, you know, you have the suspension there to soak up the hits. 
I'd say like all these things we're talking about so far have sort of applied to like let's say if you're riding your bike with your suspension full open. But if you're um, running really nice suspension on your bike, um, improvements over the past say five or so years have really sort of changed the way we can look at uh, the suspension on a mountain bike. And there are two different types of adjustments that you can make on the fly if you have them. And one of those is compression settings. And this um, essentially adjusts you know, how stiff your fork or your shock is. So you know, if you can like dial down the amount of travel or the, um, the compression and make it a little bit stiffer, there's like generally a full open range, a medium range, and then a fully locked out range. And those can increase the efficiency you know, if you're climbing and know you're going to be climbing for a long time. Um, people generally just refer to this as lockout, but generally there's a middle stage too uh, that could be called trail or something else depending on the brand you're looking at. And that sort of runs a compromise. So this really kicks in, in my opinion, in about the 140 to 160 millimeter travel range um, where you, you get more benefits from dialing um, down the compression and making your shock and your fork a little bit stiffer when you climb. Um, but there's one other type of adjustment that isn't quite as readily available but is available on some forks, and that's travel adjust, which differs um, from compression. And personally, I have fallen in love with travel adjust forks on slightly longer travel bikes in about the 150 to 160 millimeter range. Because um, as Darren mentioned before, since you're going fast, you know, they're designed to go fast downhill, your geometry is sort of slack, which, you know, makes for more confident downhill descending, but makes for um, a more wandery, harder to control feel on the climbs. But if you have a travel adjust model of fork, you can actually reduce the amount of fork travel. And now some people are like, oh, that makes your steering quicker. That makes the bike you know, easier to handle in places where it's not as rocky. But I would sort of disagree with that. It does to an extent. But I think the biggest benefit of reducing the amount of travel at the front of your bike is that it consequently steepens the head angle of the bike, which can reduce that wandery feel on the climbs. So, you know, if you have like, you know, even a mile climb or a five mile climb, just dialing down your front fork travel can make for a much more manageable climb. You pop it open when you hit the top and you have a much more fun descent. So, um, <laughs> might be a long winded monologue to essentially explain that like some of these things are like general rules that we're talking about with recent advancements. Uh, at times you can have a both and situation where you can just adjust your suspension on the fly to get the type of handling you want out of it. Yeah, that's good info. And yeah, I want to talk about geometry next, but before we move on, yeah, I just wanted to say that in my experience, I've been disappointed with most shocks in terms of being able to get full pedal efficiency out of them. Um, while you can lock them out or you know get them in a real like efficient climb mode, there's still going to be some bob. And that's normal. I mean, that's not, it's not to say that the bike, there's anything wrong with the bike because every bike is going to have that. Um, so if you're someone who really, you know, stresses about losing seconds on the climb, then that's the reason that you might not want a full suspension bike. And you might want to get a, a fork too, that you can completely lock out up front because otherwise you are going to get a little bit of bob and to a lot of people that can be annoying. If you have 
like let's see, especially on the shorter end of the travel spectrum in the 100 to 120 millimeter range, you're talking dedicated XC bikes. But if you have your settings on your shock set properly and you have a good quality shock, you should actually be able to get better traction and uh, and higher overall speed from a short travel full suspension bike than you can from a hardtail. You shouldn't really lose anything, especially on that short travel end. That's true. For efficiency, you definitely will. So yeah, if you're going up a bumpy single track rocks and roots, yeah, the suspension absolutely helps you. Um, but where you're going to notice it is if you're on like a, you know, a pretty hard packed trail that's smooth, you're going to be going up and down. I mean, if you ever followed somebody that's on a full suspension bike, you'll see them bobbing up and down ever so slightly, but it, it does happen. And, you know, it's, again, it's a trade-off. If you want good traction, then full suspension is a good choice. But if you want to just be brutally fast up smooth trails, then it might not be the best choice. Yeah. I mean, suspension is a good thing and you want it to work. And I see, uh, you know, a lot of people sometimes running way too much air pressure in their shock because they, they don't want it to move. And, that really just defeats the whole purpose of having a full suspension bike. If you are putting so much air in your rear shock that your bike's essentially rigid, you're making it a hardtail, then you're carrying around the weight of the shock and the linkage and everything for no reason. So if definitely if you're transitioning from a hardtail to a full suspension, it's probably not going to feel as fast, at least off off the bat. But I bet if you looked at your times... Um, I bet you would be faster uh, over the long haul on a on a full suspension bike, and that's why you should also you should set up your suspension to work. You know, you should make all your settings in the in the open position. You know, the most uh, open compression setting. And that's where you set your sag and your rebound and everything. So when you do switch to either so you know the middle platform setting or the fully locked out or firmest platform setting you're getting you know you're getting more benefit from those those different settings i mean personally um you know i'm you know greg's a big fan of the adjustable travel forks they're not my favorite um i just i to me they don't feel as supple as a uh, a non travel adjust fork and it changes the ride height of the front end which is you know a good thing for climbing but for extended periods of times, I feel like it changes my hand position too much and it, it puts too much weight on my hand. So I've, I've never been a really big fan of uh, travel adjust forks. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, I have um, on one of my bikes, I have the Pike RCT3 and it has three positions as open, pedal and lock. And you know, I bet 95% of the time that fork is in the open position, you know, very rarely if I have an extended fire road climb, I'll, I'll lock it out. But, um, you know, I don't also don't want to forget to unlock it on the descent. So <laughs> most of the time I, I leave my suspension fully open because I like it to suspend. <laughs> Sorry, just to, just to clarify a little bit, you know, when, um, Aaron's talking about open, you know, partially open and locked, that's different from adjusting the amount of travel that you have. So those are two different settings and uh, it's a little bit confusing because within one model line of fork the pike you can have ones that have just you know the compression settings have ones that have compression and travel adjust so there's different models within even the pike line so you know what settings you have depends a little bit on what fork you have too 
Well, we've been hitting on a number of things talking about the geometry of the bike, but are there other ways that geometry plays a role in your suspension setup? I mean, the geometry sort of correlates to like the categories that we talked about. So a common question that we get a lot is people asking to like, like, oh, my bike came with a 124. I want to go up to 140. Is that okay? You know, and that's going to adjust your geometry. So kind of the current trend um, in the industry as a whole is the long, low and slack geometry. Um, so that's uh, wheelbases are getting longer. Um, bottom brackets are getting lower. Standover heights getting lower. Uh, head tubes are getting slacker. And you're, you're kind of seeing this. Um, it kind of started on the longer travel end of the spectrum, the 160 kind of travel bikes. And, but you've seen it migrating downward in, in travel. So um, it's really interesting and something um, I, I definitely appreciate is the, you know, it's shorter travel bikes that are, so they're more efficient peddlers. Um, so they're good for really, you know, long rides. But when things get hairy and steep and fast, they still feel stable because they have, you know, a really slack head tube angle and a long wheelbase and, you know, a lot of, you know, a low bottom bracket with a lot of bottom bracket drop. So it feels like you're very, you know, centered in the bike and you can really rip around the turns. So that, that kind of uh, long, low slack, that LLS geometry, as I like to call it, um, it's uh it makes it so you can ride a shorter travel bike like a longer travel bike i would say um you know some examples you know transition is is kind of a company that's that's doing this they have the the scout and the smuggler are both kind of shorter travel um you know they have a they actually have a longer travel fork than when compared to the rear travel so it's a really you know tight efficient rear end and you know rocky mountain has their thunderbolt uh the specialized has uh the camber is their kind of you know um sporty do-it-all trail bike um and it's interesting you know specialized used to have um their standard bike and then they had an evo geometry of the of the stump jumper and of the camber and they've actually um gotten they've gotten rid of the standard one and now all their bikes feature the Evo geometry, which was the slacker head tube and, you know, longer wheelbase, et cetera. You know, Santa Cruz has the 5010 and, you know, Evo has a following. So there's definitely no shortage of these, these bikes. And I think we're, you know, we're probably just going to see more and more of these bikes that are shorter travel, but, you know, almost as capable as, you know, a, a 160 mil travel bike. So this is an upgrade that uh, quite a few people actually do, and uh, it can be a good upgrade or it could have negative consequences. And the key things to think about are how adding a longer travel fork is going to affect the geometry of your mountain bike. So in general terms, adding a fork that's one inch longer than your stock fork, so that's about 25 millimeters if we're going metric, is going to slacken your head tube angle by about one degree. Um, that's a, the rough approximation. Um, but in addition to slackening your head tube angle, you're lengthening your wheelbase a little bit more because you're pushing that front wheel out just a hair. Uh, and you're also raising the bottom bracket and changing you know, the other angles on your bike too. Your seat tube angle is changing. A few other things are changing. Um, so the general rule of thumb is you know, if you want to go, say, from a 120-millimeter fork to 140, you, know, you should be able to do that just fine. That's going to... You know, again, 
bear in mind it's going to slacken your head tube angle. You can change your bottom bracket height and your wheelbase and a few other things. Um, but that could be a welcome change. You know, um, getting a slacker front end, like Aaron was just saying, will allow you to ride faster and tackle more obstacles. You're also going to have the additional suspension travel up front. Um, so you're going to make that bike burlier and more aggressive um, on the descents. And, you know, if you have good adjustments, you might not sacrifice much on the climb. So that could be a great thing. But the, when we start running into issues, there's when we look at, you know, more and more change. So if, like, let's say if you wanted to go from a 100 millimeter fork to a 160, you know, now you're talking a lot of change. You're talking, you know, several degrees slacker, much higher bottom bracket. And um, the bike generally is a design to take stress that way. So the way the head tube is now angling and the way the bike is angling isn't the way it was designed to. So you're stressing um, essentially your frame in a, in a different way than the engineers originally planned. Generally, you know, that 20 millimeter difference, not going to make a big deal. But if you're talking 40 or 50 millimeters of additional travel, you know, you could potentially stress the welds in a way that they weren't intended to and cause a frame failure. You know, that's not necessarily super likely, but, you know, bumping that fork up and doing that aftermarket upgrade, probably going to void your warranty. So if you break frame, it's going to be on you. Um, but I would think potentially the bigger issues are your geometry changes. So the slackness up front could be great, but you're, you're talking a much slacker seat tube angle and a much higher bottom bracket, which at some point is going to make for a weird handling bike. So the long story short, if you want to bump up the travel in your fork, that's great. Uh, I wouldn't recommend going more than one inch, about 20 to 25 millimeters more than your stock fork, though. Well, that brings up a, a question that I'd had in the past, which was you know, whether it's important to balance your front and rear suspension travel. So if you have 100 millimeter suspension in the rear, Generally, bike manufacturers are going to supply a 100 millimeter fork in the front, and that's called sort of a balanced suspension platform. Um, but more and more, we're starting to see, especially among like cross country bikes that are being set up to be a little more aggressive, more toward the trail side, we're seeing like 120 millimeter forks paired with 100 millimeters of rear suspension travel. And I rode a couple of bikes set up that way at Interbike last year and was actually really imp impressed with how well those rode. Um, and I think, I don't know that there are many examples of going the opposite direction. So having less travel up front than in the rear. Um, but that's definitely something that is okay to do. Uh, but like Greg said, there are limits to how much of that you can do. So there are a few bikes that have more suspension in the back than in the front. Um, there aren't many. I believe the Santa Cruz Nomad is one of those, but it's like five more millimeters in the back than in the front, which is like a fifth of an inch. So it's pretty minimal in the grand scheme of things. When you look at a spec chart, you're like, oh, it's got more travel in the back, but it's it's not a not a very big difference. Um, but you know, you asked about having your suspension balanced, and I often like running longer forks um, than rear suspension. Um, but I personally find once you're much out past 10 to 20 millimeters of difference front to back. You know, having a fork that's about 20 millimeters longer than my rear suspension is, you know, 
about the most I want to see it. I've ridden in a few bikes with more than that. And one stock bike is the Yeti SB 4.5C. I believe it's 30 or 35 millimeters more up front versus the rear. Oh, that might not be right. I should probably check that. It's, but the Yeti SB 4.5C, long story short, was it was getting to that point where I felt like, oh, this is just isn't feeling super balanced to me. Um, you know, certain things I felt like the bike was doing great at, and others it just was not confidence inspiring. You know, I could potentially have mitigated some of those things with like a tire swap and a few different component changes. But, you know, again, with, as with anything, like within a certain range, you know, you're doing okay. But once you get to a, you know, a certain point, it's going to feel unbalanced. You know, we talked a little bit about all mountain hardtails before with 150 and 160 millimeter forks. I mean, plenty of people ride those things and love them, but uh, in my opinion, they they feel unbalanced. I mean, I I don't know. For, it's probably the way I ride. You know, maybe I should just ride different. But you know, if I have a lot of fork, like that makes me f- go fast and I can handle a lot of things. But then I start like blowing up rear wheels, um, flatting tires, and blowing up other things because my rear end isn't moving nearly as much as my front end is. So that could be a personal thing on my um, end since plenty of people love those bikes. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, if you have a fork and you're like, oh, my fork can totally handle this rock, and then you peg that rock with your rear wheel, I mean, you can do a lot of damage really quickly. Hardtails definitely take a little bit different approach to riding for sure. Um, but yeah, what, what kind of what you were touching on with the Yeti, it's, uh, you know, it's where the front end of the bike can outride the rear end of the bike. And, um, I've actually had the the opposite problem before I've had the problem you're talking about, but you know, one bike I tested last year was the, um, the Niner jet nine and it's a hundred millimeter travel front and rear. And which, you know, you think would work just fine, but in practice out on the trail, I found that I was the the rear end was so capable and it it felt like it had more than 100 millimeters of travel. I was able to, you know, push the fork way too hard. So I I actually swapped the fork out for a 120 and the bike ended up feeling more balanced even though it had 120 millimeters in the front and 100 in the rear. It felt way more confident. I didn't feel like I was getting pushed over the front end as much. So it's uh you know it's definitely something that can that varies bike by bike. That's a great point, and I felt the same with other Niners I've ridden, including the the Rip Nine and to an extent the WFO Nine. Um, I think the interesting thing is like so your fork, you know, there's some differences in valving and stuff, but generally you look at a fork and you've got your travel length, you know what the fork's going to do, and it's going to function roughly the same across the line. You know, no matter what bike you put that on. But you know, rear suspension designs, like some people want to say they're all the same, but they're just not. You know, they ride differently. So um, from bike to bike, you know, that tr- rear suspension travel number is important, but it can feel very different on one bike to another bike. So is there such a thing as too much travel in a mountain bike? I think that all depends on the rider in the terrain. Um, I think, you know, depending on what your local trails are and what you're riding, then there can be such a thing as too much travel. You know, I have, for instance, one of my bikes is a, you know, the Kona process and it has 160 mil of travel and it is way too much bike for most of the trails that we have here around town, you know, to really kind of get it in its element. I have to go to North Georgia or North Carolina or something like that. Um, 
So if I'm, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have more than one bike, you know, if, if I only had room for one bike, it probably wouldn't be that one. It'd probably be something a little bit shorter travel. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is, but it, it all depends on the rider and the rider's, you know, riding style and the terrain that you have, but you can definitely have, you can definitely have too much bike for the trail. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a trend toward longer travel bikes. But like you said, it's probably not for every situation or for every rider. So why do you guys think that trend toward longer travel bikes is happening in the industry? My two cents, it's about you know lighter weights. The components, those longer travel components are lighter than they've ever been. So you're taking less of a weight penalty. And because of the adjustments that we mentioned before, all the compression and travel adjustments are just continue to get better with time so you're getting a much more versatile like component um, you know suspension component with a longer travel one than you ever have in the past so you can get a both and situation much more easily than you ever could before so you know i could have my 160 mil enduro bike but i can dial down the fork travel i can put it in trail mode and it's going to ride like a 140 mil bike and it's going to weigh like a pound more, you know? So uh, you're getting less and less compromise, I think, especially in that enduro range. Yeah, I, th- I think there's also, you know, it's probably some of the influence from enduro racing and, you know, people kind of seeing that in the general mountain bike marketing and, um, you know, then they that's that's they, they see that, those bikes and those are the bikes that they want to ride. And it's also, you know, who do you ride with? You know, there's, I think uh, a lot of times there's a, a pack mentality. I, I see it a lot, you know, groups of riding buddies that all ride very similar bikes. You know, you can go to any trailhead here and see a bunch of bros show up and they all have, you know, Yetis or Santa Cruz's or something like that. So I think it's, um, you know, it's kind of who you ride with um, as well. But yeah, definitely like Greg said, I mean, bikes are just getting more capable and lighter. And so if you can, if you can have a 160 mil travel bike that weighs, you know, 26 to 30 pounds max, and why not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the marketing side of it too. And it should probably be noted that, you know, you see these guys in the videos doing really cool stuff, riding really fast, jumping off of big stuff. And the fact is, if you have a lot more travel, that's not going to let you do that stuff like right away. That's not like, <laughs> it's not like a secret, you know, sauce. Like you just need that much travel and then you can do that stuff. Um, I think for most people where you're going to see the benefit of more travel is just being able to ride in control faster. You know, suspension is not meant to be like a airbag for you to like, just jump off of anything as high as you, as high as you like. Um, and you know, come away from it. Okay. Suspension is there because, you know, you need your, your wheel tracking with the ground going fast and you can go fast over bigger stuff. But again, it's not, it's not like a pillow that you're going to land on. You know, in general, I think we see mountain bikers more and more just trending towards having fun on their bikes. You know, back in the nineties, it was all about racing, but most guys out there are just looking to ride and have fun. And for me personally, you know, I have the most fun going downhill and having a little bit more suspension allows me to have more fun when I'm going downhill. Um, and ultimately that's what it comes down to me. You know, lots of times I'm like, Oh, I could ride this on a hardtail if I wanted to, but I have a whole lot more fun with a lot more suspension. So it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. That's a good point. 
It's a good point. That reminds me of something I probably should have mentioned earlier that, you know, having suspension, especially rear suspension, uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to be as tiring as riding a hardtail and it's, it's just more comfortable. So even if you just have a little bit, it definitely makes the ride more enjoyable. You know, I know I said earlier that you're going to get pedal bob, but you know, the, the benefits of like feeling more fresh throughout your ride, thanks to suspension usually outweigh that, you know, it might be a little annoying at first, but, um, but yeah, you're definitely going to you're going to appreciate having that for longer days in the saddle. So I want to finish by asking a question. Is there a Goldilocks travel number? Like, is there a magical number that's perfect for everybody or that's, you know, even like a do all sort of travel number at the end of the day, I think like how much suspension travel a person needs, you know, it's, it's ultimately up to you. You know, if you, if you want a lot, I mean, go for it. If you, don't want a lot then don't get it you know but i think there's there's generally like a middle of the range where you can do a lot of things pretty dang well and i think that that number keeps moving as you know as components get better and better but personally i think your middle of the range is going to be about the 140 mil mark and that 140 mil bike is going to pedal really dang well you know it's going to be a little bit you know you're going to have a little bit of compromise compared to like a 100 or 120, uh, but not a ton. And again, you're going to have, it's not going to be as long leg down the descents as like a 160, but you're going to be able to do everything pretty dang well. So if you're looking for just one bike for your quiver and you do a lot of different things, it's hard to beat a 140 millimeter uh, travel bike. And <laughs> one thing we haven't even talked about yet is, uh, some bikes nowadays are even featuring adjustable geometries. Uh, a lot of the 140 bikes I've ridden recently will even have different shock mounting points. So you maintain the same amount of travel, but you adjust where the shock mounts, and you can have either a bike with steeper geometry that's going to climb a little bit better, a bike with slacker geometry that's going to descend a little bit better. So um, as things change, I mean, we're just getting more and more options out there. So you know, if you do enough research, you'll probably be able to settle on something you really enjoy yeah I, I would agree with with what greg said i think it, depending on on what wheel size and the geometry of of the particular bike um you know the the bikes in the 120 to 150 range are, are they just strike a a great balance across all the the various categories so the climbing um you know the the descending the pedaling um those in that kind of range are just going to be great do-it-all bikes you know if i was if i was forced to get rid of all my bikes right now and just get one it would probably be you know uh, it would be a full suspension 29er and probably with 120 millimeters of rear travel and probably 140 mil fork up front like that would be that would be my one bike you know it's something that you know if you built it up light enough especially if you know you had a different set of wheels it's something you could you could do some racing on maybe not true cross-country racing but you could definitely do some endurance events on it and then it would just be you know a blast to ride everywhere else so um yeah i think you know there there isn't like one goldilocks number it definitely depends on again on the rider and their terrain but yeah i mean the just the the meat of the market the trail bikes that we have right now are just awesome at most things so it's a good time to be a mountain biker 
Absolutely. Well, great. This has been a fun discussion. Hopefully we've shared some helpful information. Remember, if you have any questions about suspension or other mountain bike questions, you can come on our website, singletracks.com, and post in the forums, and we'd be happy to try to answer it for you. For this week, see you next time. Peace.